Women and girls spend 200 million hours every day collecting water. They may stand in line and wait for it. They may walk long distances to collect it, or they may pay exorbitant prices to secure it. They are left with little to no time for work, school, or to care for their families. For many women around the world, the water crisis is a personal one. Wendy Pavick has spent nearly a decade in the Wood River Valley of Idaho, campaigning against water abuses, standing up for the larger interests of the community, and speaking for the fish and the thirsty elk. A water woman, fine artist, and scientist, she holds a PhD in water resources and a Master's of Science in Environmental Policy and Planning from MIT. She is also the author of Taking on Water, how one water expert challenged her inner hypocrite, reduced her water footprint, and found Nirvana. I'm Wendy Pabick, and this is a lesson on the wisdom of water. What is your earliest memory of being creative? I'm not even sure I could pinpoint one particular early memory because my mom had both my sister and I in private art lessons from the time we could walk. She paints and my sister ended up going to art school. And so it's always been a really significant part of my life. And a form of expression. Exactly. How did you find your way into science? MIT, yeah. MIT, yeah. no less. Right. Not even science, but it's like it's like the Olympics of right. science, right? Well, you know, it's interesting. I have been asked this question a number of times, and I've always been equally left and right-brained. And as I've paid more attention to what that means and the way I perceive the world, I've found that there's similar patterns in the way I approach science and the way I approach art. I've actually been painting a fair amount in the last 10 years. And what I've come to understand is I'm a pretty holistic thinker. And so as a scientist, I'm able to see things sort of like my preference is to work from that really high level strategic place, like the 30,000 foot view, because I tend to be interested and good at lots of different things. And so I have a pretty holistic way of looking at the world. I see the world very visually. And so my superpower is probably pattern recognition. That's where I excelled in science, where, you know, lots of people could beat me on a math competition because I, I'll sort of get lost or forget the details, but I really like look at the whole picture. And so pattern recognition is kind of the way I operate. And I've realized as I've moved further in my painting career, I've moved from, you know, as a kid doing more literal interpretations of things to a much more abstract approach to painting at this point. When I paint, I actually start doing these into, I'm doing a lot of intuitive work. And when I do that, I find that when I'm looking to find balance and composition and color balance on the canvas, it feels like it's quite intuitive, like I'm moving around. But in the end, it it's sort of tapping into the same place in my brain that's about pattern recognition. And do you feel that they're integral to your understanding of each medium? So that your art 
helps you be a better scientist and that your science helps you be a better artist? Do you feel they're intertwined that way? They're intertwined for sure. Yeah. I mean, when you cultivate a practice of creativity, I think it helps you look at the world differently. And, you know, I will say that there's, there are plenty of scientists at MIT that are also have some form of art in their lives. I don't think it's uncommon either. What I think is because I know a lot of engineers mm -hmm. are great musicians. Right. It, I find the math brain is often a musical brain, mm -hmm. but in this particular culture, there has been a conversation that is more popular that they are not intertwined at all, that one is less valid than the other, that you should focus on science and facts as if the great scientists don't respond to some intuitive question that they're trying to answer. Well, that's it. Exactly. I mean, I mean, the idea that science is not subjective, we employ the scientific method, we try to be as rigorous as we can in asking questions and following protocols and using statistics to come to a statistically valid solution. However, all along the way, you're posing the question. Somebody is posing the question to be answered. And that question, you know, who knows where that comes from? It comes to you in the shower from your intuition. It comes to you when you're running on the trail and you get the bright idea. I love that. You call yourself a water woman. And I'm curious how you came to that. I've spent the last 30 years working to heal water from a variety of perspectives as a scientist, as an author, as an artist. In the last 10 years, both personally and professionally, started to really understand that we protect what we love. And so in my journey, been moving from head to heart. And so, so much of what I'm doing at this point, I'm doing a lot more painting. I have been in the last 10 years. I've started to look to water as a teacher. So sort of turning the paradigm around to say, water has profound lessons to offer us. It's all the yin and yang, and we could go on forever with the metaphorical things that water has to offer, but it also has curative powers, and it has the power of presence, and it has the power of resiliency, and all these things that you can feel innately and intuitively when you're in water and when you're around it. And so water heals, but we also have the power to heal water by exposing people to water in that way, in that profound connective way, people will cultivate their own relationship with water. A more reciprocal relationship with water will lead us to the place that what you love, you will protect. You refer to water as feminine, and I have always instinctively understood water as a her too. So I'm curious how you came to that. I grew up on the ocean north of Boston, sort of playing in and on and around the water, found deep connection with it and was deeply fascinated. I mean, I would spend hours staring at the ocean, looking at the sort of repetitive patterns from the sort of tiny little ripples up to the huge waves coming in and and starting to see fractals. I didn't know they were fractals at that point. I've just had this deep connection with water. And clearly when you look through history and art and literature, I mean, water has informed so much of our creative thought. So it's from that perspective 
that it feels very fluid and feminine and generative. And it's also for me personally, just having spent an awful lot of time in the backcountry. I just spent this fall a month on the Grand Canyon. And that kind of experience, that deep immersion in water is really profound. You say in your book that she is the great integrator, a connector, an agent of transformation. She is the language of our intuition and a gateway to the sacred. Yes. <laughs> it's so profound. I think what struck me is that water is a women's issue. Absolutely. Because for women around the globe, which you do write about, that lack of water is a tremendous burden. You write that women collectively spend hundreds of millions of hours each day gathering water for domestic use. Yes. Yes. I'm fascinated by water as well. I'm a water sign. I'm a cancer. I've never looked at it that way as a feminist issue, a woman's issue. Also, I thought it was interesting that it's it's dubbed the universal solvent mm-hmm. for its ability to dissolve more substances than any other compound. So it and it, because it receives these compounds easily. And again, from that feminine perspective, women are built to receive. Absolutely. When we start talking about feminine leadership, you know, the question of how women perceive the world differently and move in the world and problem solve in the world is, is from that kind of holistic, receptive, integrative place. Yeah, I love that your work takes into account the spiritual and also, again, the statistical. And I think that left brain, right brained space of living in both worlds is definitely one that feels more feminine to me right now. Men embody this way of leadership as well, but I do think that it feels definitely like it's coming from a place that we're, we're not experienced. We haven't experienced up until this moment. Right. And it feels really empowering because it does feel like you're sort of coming from a place of home when you can act that way. Exactly. So can you tell us about the moment that you decided to become a steward for water, an activist for water? In college, I studied geography as an undergrad, but was focused on sort of, it it was essentially akin to environmental studies at the time. We didn't have that major. And when I got out into the work world, I started work, I worked initially doing environmental policy work and pretty quickly started to see the lack of science in the policymaking process. I think it's sort of a slow progression. I mean, my life path has been like one slow step off of the linear road at a time. And so I would say what, you know, I don't think in college I would have called myself an activist, but as I gained some maturity and got a better understanding of environmental issues in the world and really started to put all the pieces together, some of the inequities, some of the challenges, all the issues. So I live in Idaho now but I grew up in Massachusetts. I was swimming around with people that thought like I did. And so living in the West, you know, there's cultural divides, there's environmental issues that I wasn't familiar with on the East Coast. Being a blue Democrat in in Idaho is interesting. (laughs) 
Do you find that there are more women or men in this space or is it equal? I think it's probably equal. You know, when I was at MIT, the environmental engineering program I was in was equal men and women, but that was an anomaly at MIT. Other disciplines were much, much more male dominated. I recall going to a lecture in a massive physics hall and it was the first time that I looked around and understood I could count the number of women on one hand and it was a sea of men. I was like, oh, this is what they're talking about at MIT. <laughs> Did that change the way you dealt? Did that change your, your ability to use your voice in that kind of setting? Or did it train you for what the world was like? Yeah, I mean, it gave me a little bit of awareness. My program in particular was pretty, was nurturing and there were, you know, lots of women there, but coming out in the real world doing water stuff, I've been the only woman at a boardroom table a number of times. And how do you deal with that? I don't have a problem speaking my mind. I will say the things that people don't want to hear. That doesn't always go over well. <laughs> but I mean, I guess when I say I am an activist, that's part of it. You know, I, I'm working on behalf of all of us and on behalf of water itself. And, and I understand it. And so I feel I do feel a profound responsibility to speak my truth. And so I do. <laughs> And I, I do as well. What would you say to a woman who knows that she has something to stand for, but is afraid to speak her truth? For me, it comes from probably, you know, you mentioned, we talked earlier about having a spiritual practice and having, I mean, I'm super grounded in the world too. And I'm, I do an awful lot of things outside and I have this painting practice and I'm certified to teach yoga. I have all these practices that I employ that allow me to really tap into who I am. And so I know who I am. I, I mean, I think it's that that's the place you need to, you know, connect in order to be able to stand in your truth. Do you think there's such a thing as feminine leadership? Yes, absolutely. And for the reasons, you know, we sort of started to talk about earlier is that I do believe that women and, you know, men, some men, too, but women, uh, women that are empowered and embodied sort of have a way of moving at, about and functioning in the world that's holistic and generative and creative. And we're able to integrate from, you know, all sorts of sensory input and emotion and you know imagery and and use all these those in conjunction with our intellect to come up with really sort of holistic creative resilient solutions mm -hmm. and i think there needs to be more of us i more of us embodied for sure more of us <laughs> more of us standing and standing for the things that we feel we must stand for. Absolutely. And using our voices. Only 2.5% of all water on the planet is fresh. And most of that is locked in ice or inaccessible as groundwater, leaving about 1% of all water on earth available for human use. 
1% for 7.8 billion people. In America, the country which uses the most water per person in the world, 20,000 gallons of water, which is enough to take 800 showers, do 465 loads of laundry, or wash and buff out a sports car 200 times, costs a mere $59. Cheap, right? The trouble is that the price we pay for this liquid gold in no way reflects the innumerable water poisoning and depleting externalities of our societal choices. Water is not evenly distributed, nor does its distribution match up neatly with our use patterns. It is so easy to pollute and to destroy communities. Case in point, Flint, Michigan. On this watery planet of ours, when it comes to this life-giving liquid, we carry a false sense of abundance. What struck me when I was reading is that I'm really ignorant about where my water comes from. I've been triggered by stuff, so I literally cannot throw things away because I'm aware that they're becoming the pile of junk that is on top of the sediment. But the water, and even though I'm, I do get panicked about it, I think to myself often, like, what would happen if we didn't have any water? I didn't know anything about the Ogallala Aquifer. So can you explain it and also what the concept of recharge is? It's one of the largest aquifers we have. So basically we, I mean, this, that is the issue is not sort of limited to the Ogallala. That's one example, but the void spaces between the sediment and the rock below ground that can fill up with water. So the water percolates, we get rainfall, it comes and seeps through the soil layer and eventually percolates through to the ground and recharges the groundwater table. And so we have this store of water and a lot of systems in this country, like where we are here in Idaho, most of the drinking water comes from groundwater sources. And in some communities, it's almost a hundred percent. And you can't see the groundwater. So we go about poking wells into the aquifer as if they're straws and pull out of them 24 seven, 365 days a year with really little understanding about whether we're taking water out at a sustainable rate, whether it matches how much is coming back in via rainfall and that water that makes it through the, you know, plants take it up and evapotranspire it back to the atmosphere. But that water that's left will make it through the soil matrix and through the unsaturated zone to the saturated zone or the aquifer. And so if we're taking water out at a rate faster than it's recharging, we're, you know, we're depleting the aquifer and that's happening everywhere. And that's where, when you start to see subsidence. So you see the aquifer level declining and oftentimes we're getting, we're actually getting the earth surface subsiding because the water is no longer holding up that soil matrix. You said in the book that the American Society of Civil Engineers estimates that a network of pipes or thousands of miles of pipes uh, spew an average of 2.6 trillion gallons of treated drinking water into the ground. So that's 
wasted drinking water that could fulfill the drinking requirements for a city the size of Fort Worth or Boston. Mm -hmm. And I think about the small things we're advised to do not to drink from plastic water bottles or to install the shower head, but yet there are these just massive structure infrastructure. We we know this about the bridges in the United mm-hmm. States too, but this deficit in the infrastructure. What can we do? Because I think when people hear about problems around this issue, and even if they're passionate about it, they don't believe A, that any small step will help the problem, or B, they don't know what to do. What would you say to them? So leaking infrastructure is definitely an issue. And in the older cities in this country, it's a a bigger problem than those places that have newer pipes. So that is one issue. However, what I would say is that an even bigger issue is our water footprint. And so the idea of a water footprint is it's, it's the water embedded in all the goods and products that we consume in our lives every day. So like a pound of beef takes something like 2,200 gallons of water to produce a pound of beef. And Mm. a pair of blue jeans requires 2,500 gallons of water. And, and this is primarily to, well, in the case of blue jeans to grow the cotton and with meat, it's to grow the crops that feed the animals that produce the meat. And so when we look at how much water we use in our individual homes. We use something like 30,000 gallons per person per year in our homes. But the average water footprint, which is the sum of all these indirect water uses, so your electricity use, your food, your fiber, the sum of all of those goods and services is something more like 750,000 gallons per person per year. So more than an order to of magnitude higher. And so that's where this whole issue of consumption, your question about stuff, it's all the same thing. All that stuff has an embedded water footprint too. You talk about this diamond water paradox. Yes. We stick a straw in the ground and it just keeps coming up. But in fact, not only is it not free, there's all these environmental externalities. We're polluting our water. It's not free versus the way we look at a diamond which they're, they're somewhat rare, but they're not, you know, but, but your life doesn't depend on whether or not you have a big rock on your finger. <laughs> to some people it does, right, right. <laughs> but you're, you're, you're absolutely right. right. But yeah, um, but, I'm sure some people would argue with you. I'm not one of those, but right. yes. But, but the value we impart to this, what we are calling a precious stone, you know, is, is orders of magnitude higher than we're assigning to water. You started a Deva water challenge. Yeah, and looking at, looking at knowing how you char- how you flowed. And so I want to understand how you changed your water footprint and what are some of the practical things, maybe the top three things that we could do to change our water pr- footprint. So 80% of the globe's water use goes to agriculture. So that's essentially food and fiber. So when you start to look at your diet, eat less meat is number one. And in the intervening years since I studied this, or, or actually since I was in grad school looking at nitrogen loading to the coastal zone, 
if we produced or we ate less meat in the American diet, we would release less nitrogen into the coastal zone. So less meat results in less nitrogen loading, it results in less carbon loading, and now less water use. So eat less meat, waste less food. So there's a tremendous amount of water embedded in the food that we that we allow to go to waste. The UK showed that something like um, that the water embedded in their food waste was larger than the water used in directly in people's homes across the country. Is this about like having a compost? What is the solution to that? Is that something that practically we can do or do we have to lobby our legislation? I'm really trying to understand because I do feel like this is such an important issue, but I feel like so hard. it's so hard to sort of break down the steps in a way that people can do practically. I think we're seeing in this moment what can happen in the event of a, a crisis. Right. We don't want to get to that state with the water. Yeah, I mean that the the solution of food waste is definitely multi-pronged. There are food activists that are working on that issue and it's at a minimum wasting less food, you know, people throw out food all the time, right? Like there's no need for that. Cutting down on portions, buying less food so that it doesn't go to waste in your refrigerator. When it does, composting it into your garden and growing more food. So sort of like, you know, using it in a generative way rather than throwing it into the landfill where it right. then decomposes. And maybe you get methane that's captured off the landfill, but, you know, maybe not. And then systemically, it requires collecting it from, you know, first of all, maybe asking the restaurants to get a little more methodical and cognizant about how they handle food. And then collecting, you know, some cities are doing this, collecting compost from, re from restaurants and utilizing their grease to drive your grease truck. I mean, all these ways of closing the loop. Mm -hmm. So energy has a, energy production has a water footprint as well. So that's my number three and my water cheat sheet. I have a list of, in my book of like a dozen things that you can do, but those are essentially the top three that you can do in your, per and you can do them all in your personal life. Mm. Less meat, waste less food, use less energy. And they all have multiple benefits too, right? We're taking these actions. Can we do it fast enough? That's a difficult question to answer, but we're already seeing, right? The like smog clean, clearing up over China right now, right? Mm -hmm. The earth is capable of regenerating. I mean, that's what it does. A, a like well functioning ecosystem is closed loop. Each producer's waste is another's food. And that's where mm -hmm. we've missed the mark entirely as a culture. I mean, this kind of consumptive culture that we're in, where we take a natural resource, strip off what we feel is valuable and put all the rest to waste, mm -hmm. doesn't work. We need to design our systems like the natural world in the way natural ecosystems function. So if I asked you to complete the following sentence, my wish for every other woman is? To really listen to that part of yourself and to like do make the space and use the practices and do whatever you need to do to really tap into that inner voice because we all have it. And to get to the point that you can not only 
recognize that it's there, but listen to it and nurture it and empower it because that's where you will find, you know, your inner guidance, your, your strength. You'll find the ability to go out in the world and make really amazing things happen and to connect with other people and to connect with the world and build, you know, beauty around you. You have all of the answers when you ask the right questions. Be visible. Speak your truth. Every other woman needs you to lead.